just great to see you today. Hope you're enjoying this comfortable day today. We're in a series about 40 days in the Word of God, and we're working together to build habits like reading the Bible every day, and we're studying things about why is the Bible so important for our life. Today, I'm going to be talking about how to study a Bible passage. I hope you've been keeping up with the reading. We've been reading two chapters every day. By now, you should have read through the book of Luke. You should have read through the book of John. You should have a really clear picture of Jesus' whole life. And now we're in Acts, and this week we're going to be reading Acts 12 through 25. That's getting close to the end of Acts. So at the end of this week, you're going to know pretty much what happened in the early church. You're going to see Paul's journeys as he's starting churches throughout that area and expanding the early church. Uh, You're going to see how he ends up getting arrested and why. And soon you're going to have a really good knowledge of not only Jesus' whole life, but the whole early church. So I hope that you're keeping up with your reading. If you haven't been, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. I've gotten some, you know, news from some people like, I've already finished. What next? And I said, keep going. Keep going. That's good news. You don't have to just do two chapters. You can do more if you want. That's a good thing. Here's what we've been looking at as a family here, as a church family. We looked at the inspiration of the scriptures. How can I know that the scriptures are really inspired by God? If you missed that, you can go online and listen to it. There's so much evidence for that. So we spent a whole week talking about how do we know the Bible's inspired by God? Then after that, we talked about the Bible's foundation, which is what it does in your life. It's really, what's in it for me? If I read the Bible, how does it help me? And we talked about seven things that it will do for your life. If you read it, so we're encouraging you to read the Bible, of course. Last week was illumination. How does God reveal things to me? And we talked about that. We studied how God will reveal the truth to you through Scripture. That it's a supernatural book that you're reading. That while you're reading it, at the same time you can stop and talk to the author. So it's supernatural what's taking place here. Today we're talking about observation, since we're looking at the Word of God. How do you study the Bible? How's that done? You know, the secret to Bible study is asking good questions when you're reading. So you read and you ask good questions. The difference between reading and studying is when you're studying, you write things down. And that's the difference. If you're not writing it down, you're only reading it. If you look at your notes, you'll see that we're talking about four things. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. You'll see those four major points as you look at your notes there. What's that talking about? When you're studying the Bible, you're going to ask some questions like observation. What does it say? And you're going to ask questions that make you Just look it over. You're not interpreting things, but you're just reading, what does this actually say? Then you're going to get into interpretation where you say, okay, now that I know what it says, what does it mean? You're going to focus on what this means. The Bible means what it means. I've said before, it says what it means, and it means what it says, emphasizing you can read and understand the Bible. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible doesn't always mean what it says. It means what it means. Just like when you talk, you don't always mean what you say, but you mean what you mean. 
I write you a letter and I say, oh, so you were pulling my leg when you said that, okay? Well, we know that that means, oh, so you were kidding me. But I didn't mean what I said. I mean what I mean. I meant you were kidding me. What I said was, oh, so you were pulling my leg. I absolutely did not mean what I said. The Bible does not always mean what it says. It means exactly what it means. So, for example, I write you a note and I said, oh, so I understand you were pulling my leg the other day when you said that. And then a thousand years go by and somebody finds that note and they speak a different language and they study out the words to see what I'm saying. Then they ask him, well, what's he talking about? Well, apparently somebody was saying something to him and yanked his leg or something because they think I mean what I said. That's what they think. They think I mean what I said because they're uneducated when it comes to my language. It could even be, they could even speak the same language, but a thousand years later, it might mean something different. Okay, the Bible means what it means. That's why you have to interpret it in context. You look at the context that it's talking about. Within the context, okay, I, I get it. You know, it's like the word pin. You have to look at the word in context. There's 60 meanings of that word. Pin the tail on the donkey is different than a bowling pin. And it's different than pinning somebody in wrestling, putting their back on the mat. There's 60 different definitions in English for the word pin. So what does pin mean? What well, means what it means based on the context. So when you're, reading the, when you're reading the whole paragraph, you should be able to know what that word means. But you can't tell me what that word means when it's apart from, like, if you take it out of that context, out of that paragraph, it can mean 60 different things. You can't tell me it means just one thing. It can mean 60 different things. The only way you can tell me what it means is when you put it in the context of a paragraph. That's why with the Bible, sometimes it doesn't mean what it says, but in the context, it means what it means, and you can understand it. A third thing is correlation. How do other verses explain this? Sometimes you're reading something, and it's confusing. I don't know what this means. So what you do is you look at the other Bible passages that talk about it. And when you see the other Bible passages that talk about it, you can read them together. Now it makes sense. Because a lot of times when it mentions something, that's not the only time that's mentioned. So you look at all the other passages that talk about it, and then, oh, I get it now. So you're correlating it with other things that were already written. Because to them, when they wrote that down, and to the audience they were writing to, it was a given. It was a given what it meant. They didn't add in more details because you didn't need more details. It was understood at that time what they meant. But when you read it today, you might think, what do they mean by this? You know, maybe it's talking about something to do with heaven. What do they mean by this? Well, you look up all the other passages that talk about heaven. You read it all together. Now it's clear. So that's correlation. Sometimes to, to study something, get the right meaning... You have to do that. Otherwise, that's how cults get started. They read an obscure passage that makes no sense if it stood alone, apart from the rest of the scriptures. If it just stood alone, it makes no sense. So then they make up a meaning of what it means, and they believe in some weird stuff. But when you read the whole Bible, you realize that's not what it means. You have to take the whole Bible. You have to correlate things sometimes. So if you're studying something, 
And it seems odd, like, what does this mean? You can't study it alone. You correlate it with the rest of the Bible to understand. And then application. What am I going to do about this? Because no matter what you study in the Bible, if you don't get to the point of, okay, now that I've read this, what do I do? Then you've wasted your time. Because the whole point is to change our lives for the better. So what am I going to do about what I read? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a text out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And we're going to read it. During this time, Peter was, if you have a study Bible, it's easier to study things because in a study Bible, it will give you references. Like it would say at the beginning of Philippians, before you read it, the study Bible is going to say, this was a letter written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. He was waiting to appear before Caesar. He was hoping to be released back so he could go out to the churches. It's all in there. You just read about it. And while he was in prison, he wanted to communicate to the church in Philippi, so he wrote them this letter. And he said, okay, now I understand the context of why he's writing this. He's in prison, waiting to see Caesar, hoping he'll be released so he can go and talk to them one day. But in the meanwhile, here's what I want to say to you, and he put it down in a letter. Him being in prison was the best thing that ever happened to us because that's when he wrote the Bible. He was a doer. He was not a writer. He was a doer. He was out there doing, 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 and he would never write anything down. It's not his personality. But then when he got in prison, couldn't do anything, so now he had to communicate. So he wrote everything down and sent it out, and we have it in writing, and we have the Bible. Because most of the books in the New Testament were written by Paul. So that's the best thing that ever happened to us. What Caesar meant for his harm, God was using for his good so that today millions and billions of people can read the scripture and come to the faith in Christ. So for us, it's a good thing. Now, you also find as you're reading, if you have a study Bible, which you should buy if you really want to know the Bible, and you're reading that, you're going to find out he's responding to Epaphroditus, one person who came to give him a gift from the church in Philippi. So he came to give him a gift, and he's responding back to that. So this is really a thank you letter. Okay, let's look at Philippians 2, 19 through 30. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, that passage does not seem important at all. It's a thank you note. Why did God put that in the Bible? 
Like, this is holy scripture. And you're thinking, what? This thank you note? He's talking about a couple of guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says, I'm going to send them to you. And I'm going to send uh, them back and honor them because they're good guys. But when you, you know, it doesn't seem it's very meaty or, you know, there's a deep doctrinal truth here or some big encouragement. It's just a passage that you read and you hope you read through it fast so you can get to the good stuff later. You know, and just a side issue, by the way, Epaphroditus means from Aphrodite, the god, one of the Greek gods. Um, he wasn't a Christian. He was raised, he was a Christian now, but he wasn't raised in a Christian family. Um, he was born in a Greek family, and he was named after a Greek god. So this is talking about a guy that wasn't a Christian when he was born, you know, into, he wasn't born into a Christian family. He became a Christian later on. Now, so we read this passage. It doesn't seem like for being God's word, it's kind of weak, you know. So then Romans 15, 4 says, for everything in the Bible was written to teach us everything so that through the endurance and encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So this is supposed to encourage us and give us hope. I said, well, why can I read a passage like that and get no encouragement, no hope? And the reason is because I read it. I read it. I didn't study it. If you study that, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. And that's the difference between reading and studying. Is what I'm saying is you can read your Bible and you're going to miss a lot of stuff. That's why I always say encourage you to also study it. I'll say things like read your Bible, study your Bible, memorize parts, meditate on it, and do what it says. I do that I, when I talk about the Bible, and those are the five points I hit over and over again. But why study it? Because we just read it, and really, when you read it, okay, let's go to the next part. So how do you study a Bible? How, how do you study what you're reading? Here's the points that you do. Number one is observation. You can fill in the blank. You ask yourself, what does it say? Just to lay down. You write down you know, key points. Like I would write down something like this. What does it say? Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. That would be something I would write down if I was doing a study. He's going to send these people. And because it says in Philippians 2.19, I hope to send you Timothy. Philippians 2.25, I think it is necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. So he's sending these people back. That's just an observation. What does it say? Another thing I observed is that Paul endorsed these men as role models. He said they deserve honor. So I would say, um, these guys are role models that deserve honor. You know, I'd write down something like that. Because it says in Philippians 2.20 about Timothy, I have no one else like him. Now, if Paul were to say about you, I have no one else like you, you know what he's saying? He's saying that you're the best Christian he's ever met. I have no one else like you. So there's something big there. Philippians 2, 29, Epaphroditus, he says, welcome him, honor men like him. Both of them said like him. I have no one else like him. Honor men like him. Circle those two words, uh, like him in both of those passages, because that makes you think of a third question that you'd ask is, then what are they like? It's emphasizing twice, I have no man like them, as I'm writing down things. So what are they like? What makes these men so special that they're worthy of honor? And I would see verses like the first one there, Philippians 2, 20 and 21, where he says he takes a genuine interest. Okay. Uh, verse 22, has proven himself. In verse 25, it said, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. 
That's something that they're like. Verse 26, longs for all of you and is distressed. That tells me something about what he's like. Uh, Philippians uh, 27, 30, it said, almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Okay, that tells me something that he's like. And what I would have there is just by observing, I would be able to write down, this is just observing the basics of what happened. That's what you do when you're studying the Bible. You start with observation. And then you get to number two, which is interpretation, which is, now what does this mean? Now, it's a powerful statement because it's these two men that deserve honor, and we're seeing characteristics about men that deserve honor. And then you start thinking, today's Father's Day, right? I want to be a man. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband, too. I want to be a good man. This is a great passage for us today because this is teaching you how to be a man. This is saying these are the type of men that you honor, and I'm going to look at that, and I want to be that guy. I want to be the type of guy that's honored. So what type of guys are these? What are they doing that's so great, these five characteristics that we saw about these guys, that are so worth honoring that Paul would say, I don't know anybody as good as these guys. It's like, these guys are the best. That's what I want to be. I'm not here to be second best. I want to be the best. I want to achieve the best I can. So the first thing that we're going to look at, you know, it's talking about what it means to be a really godly man. You could say a godly father, however you want to word it, because we want to be godly fathers. In Philippians 2.21, it says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone else looks out for his own interest. Why is nobody like him? Because everybody else is selfish. They only think about their own interest. And that's usual what happens. You know, people don't care about others. A lot of times they only care about their, themselves. And the reason why Timothy is to be honored and we want to be like him is he cares about other people. That's what it means to be a good dad. That's what it means to be a good man. That's what it means to be a godly man. Now, in English, there's dozens of translations of the Bible. That's good. Because if you're studying the Bible, you want to read more than one translation. Because let me put it this way. In the original Bible, the Greek and the Hebrew, there's 11,000 words used. Not 11,000 words, but I'm saying 11,000 different words that people used. You know, that's how many words in the language they used. In the English Bibles, there's usually about 8,000 words. So there's 11,000 words, and we translate them, and we only use 8,000 words when we're writing out the Bible. You know, it's about the same amount of words that are written, but they write the whole Bible using 11,000 words. We write the whole Bible using 8,000 words. Let me tell you what. If someone's talking with 11,000 words, and I'm only talking using a dictionary with only 8,000 words, something's being lost, Right? Because there's too many words in one language that you can't translate to another language with one word. You have to use a phrase. Like, hmm, how do I say that in English? Because English doesn't really have that word. So I would use like a little phrase to explain that one word. Things like that. So what I'm trying to say is, today to study the Bible is really easy. You know what I do? I go online. Go to BibleTools.com. I go right there, and I'll look it up in different... It's really easy. I just plug in the 
there's a click and it gives, all, all this is free. It's all online nowadays. There's no excuse for us. I, it ha, gives a list of Bible versions. I'll click on that one, see how it words it. I'll click on that way, see how it words it. And when, after you read about eight or 10 people that translated it, or eight or 10 groups that translated it, you'll now get a broader view of what it really means. Sometimes when you only read one translation, you get it, but you miss out some cool stuff. Like, oh, when I, I look at more than one translation, oh, now I get it. Because it words it in a more clear way uh, when, the more you look at it. For example, English. I love Jesus. I love popcorn. Wait a minute. I think there's a big difference between that word, I love Jesus, and I love popcorn. That would never happen in the Greek. You would never use the word love for a food item. It'd be like. They would never, it's not, it would never exist in their language. So if I said, I love popcorn, and they translated that into the Greek, the Greek mind would be thinking, what? This is a, it's a, they messed up. They messed up. They didn't translate it right. Because you can't love popcorn. You can only like it. But in English, you can love it, Right? So in English, you're allowed to love popcorn, but in Greek, you're not allowed to love popcorn. You can't. It's impossible. You can only like it. Okay, so what happens with translations is we use words, the same word that they use, but in a different way. And in fact, the word love, they don't have one word for love. They have three words for love, and they only like popcorn, so that's not even a word for love. And they would say eros, which is the love, romantic love between a man and a woman, so when you're reading it in the Greek, you know exactly when the, what they mean when they use that word love. In English, you could say, I love her. And they're thinking, in English, does he mean romantic love or he loves her like a friend? But in Greek, you would never have to ask that question because they have two different words. Philio is like a brotherly love. So if you loved her like a, a family member, like a friend, you'd use that word. If you love her like romantic, you'd use eros. If you love her like God loves you unconditionally, no matter what you do, I love you, that's agape. So what I'm trying to say is when you're translating from one language to another, sometimes you don't know. You can't just easily just translate it straight through. So when you look at, like, oh, wow, I really want to know this better. So you go online, and here's what it says in the NIV. Okay, I'm going to click the New American Standard. That's how it words it. Okay, what does the Good News Version say? What does the Word say? And you look at these different versions, you start seeing a clearer picture of what it's saying. And in today's world, there's no excuse for anybody in this room unless you don't have a computer. But most people have a computer. And you can say, if you wanted to know what that passage meant in a deeper way, you could look at multiple translations and get a deeper meaning. In Second um, Philippians 21, 2.21, it says, He genuinely cares for you. Others only care about themselves. In the Phillips translation, it says they are all wrapped up in their own affairs. Now, that makes more sense to me. See, when I read it in one passage, it says he only cares about himself. And then I said, these guys are selfish, rotten people. And then when I read in the Phillips, and it gives a different way of explaining it, it says they are all wrapped up in their own affairs. And then I said, ooh, I'm guilty of doing that sometimes. See, in the first one, I can point my finger at them because it's an accurate translation. It says they only care about themselves. It's an accurate translation, but it sounds like those selfish people, look at what they, they only care about themselves. 
But then when you read it in the Phillips and it says they're all wrapped up into their own affairs, I say, oh, I do that sometimes. Sometimes just by reading the different ways that they wrote it, you get a picture and then you realize, oh, I do that. I can't point my finger. This is something I do. So it's very important that in today's world, when they give us the computer and online information so that you could read 20 different copies of it if you wanted to, we can take so much advantage of what's out there to be the most solid believers we could be. So I wrote down, you don't have to use this word. You can write down the one you want. But I wrote down after looking about this is a godly man is caring. But you might write down, no, I'm going to write down a godly man is compassionate. You might have read the same passage and you write down a godly man is unselfish. Or you might have written down a godly man is not self-centered. If you're doing a Bible study, we're not all going to write down the same word, but we're going to get the same meaning. Today's Father's Day. I want to be the best dad I can be. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to be caring, compassionate, not self-centered, whatever you write down. But that's how you study the Bible. Timothy genuinely cared about people, and he didn't just think about his own interest. This is a message that we need today. We need men that aren't self-centered, that we really care about others because every advertisement out there tells us to look out for number one. And we need to be countercultural, and we need to think about other people, not just ourselves. And it's rare to find people that really have a concern about other people and not just themselves. So for Father's Day, we want to be compassionate. We want to be caring. You know, we don't want to be selfish. That's what we want to be as a man. Then, the next part is Philippians 2.22. It says, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. In God's word version, he says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. You can circle those words proved. That means he's been tested. So this is one of the words you could maybe use. A man of God is dependable. Or you might say a man of God is reliable. You might say a man of God has proven to be faithful. Just depending on, there's all kinds of ways you can write it. Uh, The greatest ability, I think, is dependability. Because if people can depend on you, I mean, that's a big deal. And as a dad, I want my kids to depend on me. Meaning, I want them to be able to depend on me that I'm dependable, that I'm reliable. I put down because, you know how me, I'm putting everything in C's. Okay, you know, I say caring, so I put consistent. I try to find five C's. You might put a godly man is not wishy-washy, or a godly man is a man of conviction. But the difference between conviction and an opinion, by the way, is an opinion is something you'd argue for. Conviction is something you died for. And if you haven't found out what you're willing to die for, you're not ready to live. There are certain things you should be willing to die for, okay? There are certain things that you should be willing to die for. I'm willing to die for my family. Uh, I'm willing to die for certain principles I believe in. You don't know how to live until you know what you're willing to die for. So what are the values that you have that make you a healthy person? I want to be caring, and I'm a, it's Father's Day. I want to be consistent. I want my children to be able to rely on me, meaning I'm dependable. I'm not going to let them down. 
Maybe they've been let down at their school. Maybe they've been let down by a friend. Maybe they've been let down by an uncle or aunt. But I don't want them to ever be let down by me. So we're thinking like as a father and Father's Day and reading this passage, I want to be caring and compassionate, but I want to be dependable. I want to be consistent. They can rely on me. The third thing that we see here is Philippians 2.25. It says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. In the Good News Version, it says, he has worked and fought by my side. What I see here when I see the words brother, fellow worker, fellow soldiers, because I'm an athlete, I think teammate. My brother, it's like we're on the same team in a sense. But I really see it when I see fellow worker. What's a fellow worker? That's someone that you're working together with. You're on the same team. A fellow soldier, what do you see that? You're, you're defending yourself or whatever, but you're on the same team. So what does this tell me about a, a good man, a godly man? Is I put the word cooperative because I was looking for a C, meaning I work well with other people. I'm a team player. I'm not only in it for myself. I work with others because it says fellow worker. It doesn't say he works alone. It says fellow soldier. It doesn't say a one-man army. A man of God is a one-man army. No, that is not a man of God. It says the opposite. It says he's a fellow soldier. That means he's working with others. It says, brother, 133 times in the New Testament, they call one another brother. Okay, what does that mean? That when you're a member of a church, you see one another's family. In fact, it says, treat, talking about the church, it says in the Bible, it says in the Bible, treat older men like they're your father. Treat older women like they're your mother. Treat uh, younger men like they're your brother. Treat younger women like they're your sister. Okay. Now, he's writing this to a guy that was a young man. You know, so he was saying, you know, the people your age, treat them like brothers and sisters. Uh, treat the people older than you like a father and a mother. That's in the Bible. What is that saying? We're family. Does, a fan, does that sound like that a good Christian is the lone ranger? I'm, you know, that's how I know like, I, I don't go to church. I'm just my own Christian all by myself, me and God. No, that's not biblical at all. It's the opposite of what the Bible says. It says fellow worker. That means we're working on the same task. We're working on that same mission. Being a godly man is being a guy that works well with other people. We're working on this. There are some people that go to church, and they can't get along with people. That's not godly. That's ungodly. Because a fellow worker is someone that works well with other people. We're on this together. If, if a man is saying, I'm spiritual, but I can't get along with other people, but I don't work well with others, then you're not spiritual. You can't say I'm spiritual and then not work well with others. It's like, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I don't love my neighbor as myself. Then you're not spiritual. You've got to do both. It's a whole package. Love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my uh, neighbor as myself. Okay, that means I, if I'm spiritual and I love God, I work well with others. I learn how to get along. You know why? Because I'm a fellow worker. I'm a fellow soldier. I'm in the same battle with you. We're going to encourage each other and help each other out. We're in a battle against Satan or against evil, whatever you want to say. But we're in the same battle and we're here to encourage each other. 
So a godly man is cooperative. He's someone that works well with other people. He's not difficult to get along with. And you might say, well, I am difficult to get along with. And then the point of reading the scripture when you're doing a Bible study is you say, well, I am difficult to get along with. What does this mean? I guess I need to change. That's the whole point, right, of reading the Bible? I guess I need to change. Praise God that you did the Bible saying, praise God that you noticed it. Okay, yeah, I need to change. Why, am I, why don't I get along with other people so well? If I'm a Christian, why am I not getting along? Let me tell you what. When you can get along with people, you can get along with your sons and daughters better. And we have, we're better dads. We're better dads. For women here, even though I'm talking about the dad, come on, the same thing applies to you. As a, to be a great woman, you want to be caring. To be a great woman, you want to be consistent. You know, to be a great woman, you want to cooperate with others. This isn't really just about men. It's just so he's talking about two men, and today's Father's Day. But for every woman here, this applies to you as well. Um, then the fourth thing we see here is the Philippians 2.26. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. So I say, okay, he's emotional because they heard he was ill. Now, as we read things, like I said in the study Bible, you'll read things at the beginning to understand what it talks about. Um, if you get a study Bible, because it will say this is what Philippians is about. Paul's in prison. They're taking a love offering to Paul, and uh, they need somebody to do it. And uh, Philippi is in Greece. Paul is in Rome. It's an 800-mile walk. That's a long walk. And Epaphroditus is willing to do the walk. Uh, there's no planes, trains, or automobiles. So there's bandits. There's no motels. And on his walk out there, he gets sick and he nearly dies. So when the news gets back to the church in Philippi that he was sick, they get all worried. We heard he's sick. Is everything okay? Okay. Is, is he fine? And now that gets Epaphroditus worried in this way. I don't want them to be all worried about me. I've got to get back there and tell them I'm okay. They're really worried. They heard that I almost died, and they're freaking out over there. And now he's all up, like, oh, I don't want them to feel so bad. Why is it that way? Because he's considerate. He's considerate. It matters to him if something he does is stressing you out. It matters to him if something he says is stressing you out. That only happens when you're considerate. So for Father's Day... I want to be the best father I can be, so I need to be considerate. I need to be considerate about my kids and their feelings because it matters. I need to be considerate about my wife and her feelings because it matters, and I need to be considerate about people at work that I work with and what I do and what I say and how it affects their feelings because their feelings matter. So then I would say, so uh, to be a godly man, to be a good father, to be a good mother, to be a good person... I need to be considerate about other people. Some people say, well, I just say what I think as if that's a mature thing. Have you ever noticed little kids, they have no filter? You know, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, you know, they'll just walk up to you and say, your hair is ugly. <laughs> or, you know, or, mommy, look at how fat he is. And they say it right out loud, and that's what kids do. You know what? They have no filter. You know what we call that? We call that immaturity. That's what it is. 
It's immature. So why would a grown man or a grown woman say, I just say it the way it is? You know why? Because they're immature. That's not maturity. And they say it as if they're proud and everybody else is looking at them like they're a dunce because you don't have a filter in your mouth. You're not mature enough yet that you realize that you just don't say everything that's on your mind. But you have enough maturity that you learn there's a proper time to say something. There's a proper time not to. There's a time that you just say something to somebody one-on-one in person. There's another time that you're public. But some people are so immature that they'll just blurt things out there, and they'll be saying, and they're proud of it, and I just say it like it is. That's being rude. That's not being godly. So I want to be a godly man. I want to be a good father, so I need to be considerate of how what I say affects other people. What if what I'm saying is hurting other people? I need to be mature. I need to grow up. In 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Why? Because that's a major problem in marriage. If I'm not considerate with my wife, we're going to have friction. Her feelings are going to be hurt, and it's going to affect our relationship. So we have to be considerate of one another's. Be considerate of their fears. Be considerate when you're talking about sex. Be considerate in your relationships about communication. But be considerate about your spouse. And then a fifth thing that we saw here, Philippians 2, 27 to 30, Indeed, he was ill and almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. So they sent Epaphroditus, and he nearly dies. And circle the phrase, risking his life. So what I thought of is, trying to find a C, of course, a godly man is courageous. You might have written down a godly man is fearless. Okay, but I decided to pick the word courageous. He's courageous. He's fearless. You know, he's risking his life. That takes courage, but it's not for his benefit. And here's what I mean by this. I've met men that will risk their lives climbing a mountain, scaling a wall, surfing an enormous wave, and they're not doing it for your benefit. They're doing it so that they get the glory and everybody thinks, look at what he did. It's for me, it's for me, look at me, look at me. I climbed that mountain, look at me. I did that big wave in Hawaii, look at me. So I've seen people risk their lives because they, they want that glory so bad. I've heard people bet the farm on a business deal because they wanted that money so bad, but they took a risk. And they took that risk because they wanted money so bad. Why? Because they were going to give it all to the poor? No. They weren't going to give it to the poor. They're risking their farm. They're risking their house. They put their, all the money that they have in their house into this because they know it's going to. Why? Because they're thinking, I'm going to get rich. It's for me. It's for me. So I know plenty of people that were risk that aren't spiritual. He's risking his life and getting nothing out of it. He's doing it completely for other people. That's what I'm talking about is when someone's willing to risk their life and they get nothing out of it. They're just doing it for other people. It's like, um, you know, a person throws a hand grenade in the middle of a floor where there's a crowd of people. And most people run. But there's always that one person that would jump and lay down on the, on the hand grenade and kill himself knowing that's the only way to save. Because while everybody's running, everybody's going to die. And he knows there's only one way to do it. So he jumps on it, you know. And he's willing to risk his life so that everybody else can live. That's what this is talking about, is a person that's willing to sacrifice 
and they don't get anything out of it at all. You know, they don't get the benefits of their own sacrifice. When you're risking like that, wow, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a man of courage. You know, to walk 800 miles to give this offering to Paul, and he doesn't get anything out of it other than a hug and say, thank you, and you're the type of guy to be honored. That's all he gets out of it. Uh, he's doing it for other people. See, Christianity, in a lot of ways, has become really weak, at least in the United States. I don't see it so much in countries where you suffer for being a Christian, but we take it for granted. We really do. Because we'll talk about, oh, sometimes we feel like we're suffering. We're not suffering. In the, we're not suffering in this country for being a Christian at all, not compared to the world, you know. Um, but we need to, you know, take advantage of the freedom we have here and uh, be willing to sacrifice and be willing to do good things. Uh, we have the freedom. We have the freedom to do these good things. Okay, so... We just talked about five things and how to be a great dad, how to be a great man, how to be a great woman. Now, when I read that passage the first time, when I just read it, none of that was there, meaning it was, all, it was there the whole time. But I'm just telling you, when you read the Bible, you miss a lot. It's like you're looking for, you know, your, uh, like a uh, treasure. You know, we're on a treasure hunt. And, you read, and when you just read the Bible, it's like being on a treasure hunt and walking right past the treasure and not even noticing it there, and you never see it. When you study the Bible, you get the treasure. You're digging now because the treasure's hidden underground, so you can walk and walk over, and you'll never get it. That's like reading the Bible. You've got to stop and dig. But when you dig, you find out right in this passage that we read that had nothing in it that you're thinking, there's no encouragement, there's no hope in here. What it really had is five key things that can help us be the best people that we could be, the best dads that we could be, the best people that we could be. So that's the difference between reading and studying. That's why I say, don't just read the Bible, study it. You know, make observations and then interpret what these things mean. And then you walk out saying, man, this passage changed my life. A third thing that you do is correlation, how other verses explain it. So on this one, for example, we're reading about Timothy. Maybe what you would do is, hmm, where else is Timothy in the Bible? Here again, you go online, and online they have concordances. You don't have to buy the stuff anymore, and you don't have to carry these big books around because you just go online, you find the concordance. I find this in the Bible tools. That these are free online now. And once you find the concordance, all you do is you type in the word, Timothy, and it will have every verse in the whole Bible printed out boom, 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 on the computer screen that has the word Timothy in it. And you can read everything about Timothy. You'll find out, oh, in the Bible, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. If you had those two letters, you're going to see exactly what Paul said about Timothy or to Timothy. So you could go deeper by correlating things. Another thing is you could put Epaphroditus in there. You'll find out in his case, there's only one other verse that ever mentions his name. And it's in the same book. And it tells why they sent him. They sent him to bring the gift, the financial gift uh, that Paul needed. So, but in that case with Epaphroditus, you say, oh, he's not, they never talk about him anywhere else. But for Timothy, you see a lot in there. Or you'd say, hmm, these five characteristics, I want to be this kind of man. But I want to study those more. So you could write the word caring in, and it would print out, and it would show you every verse that has that word in there. Uh, throughout the whole Bible, and you can read them all. Uh, you might put 
you know, courageous, or you might put fearless, because maybe you used a different word. I put courageous, maybe you said fearless. You know, but what I'm saying is you put the word in and it will print out and it will show you every verse printed out, you know, on the screen, what it says about the word fearless. So if they say, out of the five that say, I'm good at most of these, but I'm not very consistent, or I don't feel like I'm dependable enough, but I want to be. Though you type in the word dependable, and it will tell you every verse in the Bible. You want to be a good businessman? Write the word business in there, and it will tell you every verse in the Bible that uses the word business, and you can read the whole verse. Or debt. I'm in debt. What does the Bible say about debt? You write the word debt in, and it will tell you every verse in the Bible, and you don't have to be a pastor to be able to do it. All you have to do is be able to go online, find it. Once you find it once, you have it forever. Type a word in, and you can read everything about debt just like I can. See, in the old days, you had to be a pastor. You had to buy a you know, $120 book to do it. and every, It's all free. It's all free. That's why we have no excuse for not having Bible knowledge. Today, it's a gift. It's for everybody. In the old days, it's for the pastors, and you just trust what I say. Really, that's what it's like. Because who's going to go out and buy $200 and $300 worth of books? No one wants to do that. So the pastor would because it's his livelihood. But now it's free. Everybody can know the Bible as much as you want to. So that's what correlation does. So you correlate. Like I said, you're reading something that's fuzzy. What does this mean? So you type in that word, and you see what everything else in the Bible says about it, and now you know what it means. Oh, I get it now. I get it. Okay, fourth thing is application. What am I going to do about it? This is the most important part because like uh, James chapter 1, verse 22, I don't know if I put this in your notes, but it says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's the most important thing because what good is it to read the Bible if I don't apply it to my life? And I can even know these are five things I need to do to be a godly father, but it doesn't mean I'm applying it. And you want to ask questions. Like when I'm thinking about how do I apply this in my life, I'll think of things like, is there a sin here that I need to stop doing? Is there some sort of promise here that I just need to start believing in? Uh, is there something here that I see about my attitude that I need to change? Maybe there's something here I need to obey. Is there an example here that I need to follow? Because that, in this case, there's two great examples, these guys. Maybe there's a prayer here I need to pray. Maybe there's some sort of error I'm doing that's wrong that I need to avoid. Maybe there's, something, there's a truth here I need to believe or follow. But what I'm saying is, if you ask questions, you're going to be able to apply it to your life. So in this passage that we read that seemed like there was nothing in there, what I see in the application is, number one, it says, honor men like this. It says, okay, it word for word says, honor men like this. Who do I know who's caring and consistent and courageous? And you go down the list, who do I know like this that I need to honor? And then you say, you know what? That person, I know that person. They're like this. How can I show them honor? Then you come up with a plan, and you decide how you're going to honor them. And then you honor them. You know, I'm going to take them for dinner and tell them how great they are. You know, whatever. But you honor them. Now what happened is I didn't just read the Bible. Now I'm living it. Because the Bible said, honor men like this, and I've never done that. That means I'm not living the Bible. The Bible said, honor men like this. So I find somebody that I think, that's the type of person they are, and then I honor them. Now I'm living God's word. If I, if I don't live it, or this would be another application. I would look down that list 
of being considerate and courageous and caring and cooperative and consistent. And I might find the one that I'm weakest at. I said, to apply this to my life so it changes the way I live, I'm going to work on that issue. I'm just not very good at doing that, so I'm going to work on that. I'm going to be more compassionate. Or I'm whatever one it is that you pick. And then you work on it. Now, that's what it means to let the Word of God change your life. I can guarantee you, if we were just reading the Bible, it's easy for us to read that whole passage and makes no difference in our life. You've read the whole passage, and it makes absolutely no difference in your life. You're not a better man because you read it. You're not a better woman because you read it. But boy, did I read my Bible today. Boy, am I spiritual. You know, I read my Bible. It hasn't changed my life. Brought me no encouragement, no hope. But I did it. You know, I did it, right? That's exactly what can happen to us. But when you take the time to study it a bit, write a few things down. What can I do about this? You change the way you live. You change the way you live. I want us to be a church that I want us to know the Bible. I want us to understand it. But only if we're doing it. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Bible talks about that. That's Bible verse. What it's saying is there's a lot of people that get a lot of knowledge, and then it makes them prideful, the opposite of Christianity. Which means I'd almost like you not to read the Bible and study it if you're just going to do it to be prideful and arrogant and say, I know this, I know that, I know this. It's probably better for you not to even look at it if, if that's what you're going to do. Because if knowledge puffs up, if it just makes you a prideful, arrogant person, you're probably worse for the kingdom as a result of you reading the Bible and knowing the, all the details. But love builds up. So the idea is, you, I want you to know the Bible backwards and forwards so that you can live it. That's why. You're living it out. You're, you're being Jesus' hands and feet to the world with the love that you're showing, and you're, and you're becoming a better dad, better mom. For me, I like this a lot because I'm focusing on me being a dad. I want to be a better dad. So these are the five things I want to work on. That's encouraging to me. I think if you're a dad, you relate to that. Yeah, I want to be a better dad. This helps. But if you're not a dad, a better person. Take the Bible. Read it. But apply it to your life so it changes the way that you live. So that you can really be all that God's called you to be. With that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to thank you that you want to change our lives for the better. I pray for every father here, Lord, that you give us the strength to be better and better dads. But we know this message isn't really for dads only. I pray for every person in this room that will make a commitment to be better people by being courageous and consistent and caring and cooperative with others. Lord, that we will live the type of life that you want us to live. Lord, we want to be considerate with others and their needs. We thank you for your word, that we can read something in the Bible, that when you read it, it seems like there's not much there. But when you study it, you actually find out there's a lot there to help us to be what you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.